This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my interview with Andrea Pitzer was recorded in January of 2021. I'm very pleased to have with us uh, today for the first time uh, on this show, Andrea Pitzer. Uh, she is a journalist, and you have seen her writing on a variety of places, the Washington Post, the New York Review of Books, the Daily Beast, Vox, uh, amongst others. Uh, she also uh, has previously uh, released two other works, and she received an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Ladies later studied at MIT and Harvard, so we got a smart one on our hands. She grew up uh, in the great state of West Virginia, and she currently lives uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. Very pleased to have her here. And we're going to be talking about a brand new work called Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. Andrea, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Warner. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, we're very pleased to have you here. I'm, n- I'm not sure how you've escaped our microphones in the past, but uh, glad to make up for that today. Let's do this. Uh, you spent a lot of time uh, as a journalist uh, and working that way. Of all the subjects in the world, um, and this is a really, really fascinating work, but what, what led you to uh, this story, of th- this very, very unique story of the sea? Well, it was actually when I was writing my first book, which was about the Russian novelist who wrote the book Lolita, that scandalous novel, uh, about half a century ago. And I was researching a, a place name he used in one of the books, and he mentioned this Zembla place. And I went and looked up Zembla, and there's a real place in the world, these islands called Nova Zembla. They're north of Siberia in Russia. And I started looking into the history. This is a little more than a decade ago. And there was this amazing little vignette I found about a group of Dutchmen in the 1590s, who were trying to get from Amsterdam over Europe and Asia to China, like a trade route, and they got stuck for the winter. So these Dutch guys were stranded off every map. Nobody knew the place that they were at at all, and they had to try to find a way to survive for the winter. And the more I looked into it, the more amazing it was, and I couldn't believe that somebody hadn't done a real comprehensive English-language book tying together all the sources to tell this this incredible survival story. And the survival story has survived centuries, obviously. And uh, so they they go, they're, they're trying to forge a new route, and suddenly they find themselves stuck. Is that right? Right. They go on three expeditions, and each time the ice is just, I mean, they might go 150 miles zigzagging back and forth, circling back around, right. uh, just to go four miles forward, you know, to, right. uh, on their quest. I mean, it just is unbelievable how much ice they hit. And each time they reach a point where they say, we have to turn around. But on the third expedition, and the second one had mutinies and keel hauling and all kinds of stuff, but on the third one, when they did turn around to go home, they could not even come back home. And so it's just this idea of hundreds of feet high of ice surrounding their boat at one point, and they decide they have to that they can't even stay in the ship. They're going to have to try to build a cabin on land, which in an Arctic kind of desert with no trees can be a real challenge. Uh, and indeed, and a little bit windy too. And I'm mindful yeah. of that. Just as as we are doing this interview, I'm looking out a window at a very blustery 
Midwestern uh, weather outside. Temperatures about 20 degrees, and it's snowing, and it's nowhere near as cold as it was for them, I'm sure. Here's a question I would like to ask you, uh, and that is this. Uh, You said they had two trips prior to the one where they got stranded. Uh, Did they not notice a pattern that, hey, this may not be the best idea for us to do? Or it must have been, apparently, the rewards were worth it. Well, it was a little bit of both. Um, William Barrett's my main character, clearly wanted to go as far north and then as far east as he could. There was something driving him to do that that I suspect was more than money, which was this man who wanted to map a new world. At the time, they didn't even know if these islands, which they'd heard about before, and then they sailed farther north than anybody had gone over them, uh, they didn't even know it wasn't part of a polar continent. I mean, the degree to which the Earth was still unmapped is kind of amazing from this era. But you would think, yes, that they would have drawn some lessons from those first two, but the, 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 hard, the, the hardcore guys stayed and went on this third expedition, and they really thought that if that there was kind of this ring of ice, and if they could just break through that ring of ice, that there was going to be this open polar sea, and then they would have easier going. But they were really pretty catastrophically wrong. Okay, you touched on, and you mentioned the word mutiny, and that stuck in my head, and I'm trying to think, again, about how many people were on these voyages? Well, the first expedition, it was uh, kind of, two teams of basically two ships each, and some of them were going to try to go north, and some of them were going to go close to the Russian mainland, and they were going to see what they could see on the other side. So that's just uh, two big ships and two smaller ships. Then the second one, when they thought they had found a route, uh, the, a bunch of merchants funded them, and so they had a seven-ship fleet, a really big fleet, right. and they were going to get all the way to China, but that was where they got sort of stuck the most. There were men eaten by polar bears, some guys decided to steal from indigenous people they met a little south of where the most northern parts of the book take place. They did run into some indigenous people, and some sailors stole things from these uh, people, and they were punished for it. They were keel-hauled, which means you put a rope around you and drag you under the boat in Arctic water, if you can imagine that. It tore one man in half. And so after the polar bears ate some guys, after... You had this keel hauling, and after there were uh, some men drowned in a collision of ships, some of the guys, not surprisingly, were thinking, maybe this isn't so good. And yet the officers were saying on that second expedition, so this is 1595, they were saying, we still think we should press on. So at that point, there was a mutiny that rose up. I won't ruin wow. uh, the story wow. by saying what happened to them. Wow. Okay. So so how much on a story that happens in a, in such an incredibly barren, remote, would have to have been horrific conditions. How were you able to, who, were they keeping journals? How was this sort of documented? How, undoubtedly stories were brought back, but in terms of doing research, how were you able to pull all this together? Well, that's the challenge. I love trying to do this for, for books, and doing one from 400 years ago, I have to say, was a really big challenge. There is one journal that we have that's an account of all three of the expeditions. I had another set of journals translated that were uh, in Old Dutch that had never been translated into English, and I was able to get somebody to translate those, and that's accounts of the first two expeditions. I went to Amsterdam, to the Rijksmuseum there, and actually to some other museums in Russia and in Norway that have relics from their cabin that were found about 300 years later. So I have their beer tap. I have their little uh, leather shoes that froze solid. I, had, I got to touch and hold their um, 
like leather crafting and sewing tools. I got to see a cane one of them had, some navigation equipment. So I'd actually handle these things that they had touched, which was really helpful. They were also building a replica when I was researching the book. They're almost completely finished with it now uh, of the ship from the third expedition. So I actually got to go climb down into what was basically the same dimensions of the ship as best we can tell, and we have a lot of details. Then uh, the shape and the decks and how big was it and how, you know, like how many steps is it side to side. And so I got to sort of live in that world that they, they traveled in when they were on the sea. And then because that still wasn't enough, I went on three Arctic expeditions myself uh, to go to the places that they had been. And I tried to do it as much in the ways that they did as, as I could. I can't get exactly that. But I went to the ruins of their cabin on my last expedition. On the second expedition, I sailed on a tall ship to one of the places they discovered. And I learned how to work the sails. And I spent a lot of time all the way up the top of the mast trying to sort of imagine I'm the very first person to ever see this coastline. So I, I tried to do it through a variety of experiences and artifacts, and then actual, you know, library research. So, as you were on, as you went to the Arctic and you did these things, you must have been just astounded. I mean, it was incredible. There were so many moments where I just could hardly imagine how 400 years ago. Now we have GPS, we have satellite, even if you can't, you know, when on my third expedition I was so far out that rescue would have been difficult, but people knew where we were. The ship is beaming out a signal, we had a satellite phone we could use if we needed to, but these guys were really like completely off the edge of any map. Nobody even knew that the place that they were stuck existed. They were so caught, cut off from everybody, and so that was always in my mind, but there were also some specific moments, like 400 years ago there's a point in one of the journals where they see walruses for the first time on these islands, these Russian islands, Nova Zembla. They see walruses, they've heard about them, but they've never seen them before, and they know that their tusks are valuable. So they immediately start climbing out of the boat and trying to slaughter as many of them as they can for their tusks. We get to that same exact place today, 400 years later, and there are hundreds of walruses sitting in exactly the same place. And I have to say, I mean, maybe it shouldn't be shocking, but it just blew my mind. Of course, we didn't try to kill them, but one of the uh, uh, crew members had a garmonica, basically an accordion, and started playing a little waltz, this very melancholy waltz. And the walruses all came over and gathered, and basically he performed this concert for them. It was just, it was really one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. So while you're doing this discovery uh, about these expeditions, and about these people, learning as much as you can about the people that were actually on it, and the mission and the mindset. What uh, this is probably a little bit cathartic for you. What did you sort of learn about yourself too? Uh, <laughs> well, I learned um, that that I'm glad I don't have to go through what they went through. But I had a pretty tough year last year myself. Um, I lost a cousin. I lost an uncle. My stepfather died. Uh, I had to take legal guardianship of my mom who has a dementia. My dad got pancreatic cancer, and my husband had a brain aneurysm. So uh, he has fully recovered. Um, but I really felt so beleaguered that this whole last year, finishing the book and getting it ready to go out, and I, I often would wake up and just almost feel like I was having a heart attack and think I can't, like, I can't get up and go on and do this one more day. But then I would work on the book about these guys who literally were trying to survive the winter in a cabin with more than an inch of ice on the inside walls, and they didn't have enough food, and they are dying of scurvy, and yet they, when they do set out from home in their small boats, 
they day after day are having to drag them over, literally lift their boats out of the water, drag them over the tops of icebergs, come down on the other side thinking maybe we'll hit open water now, and there's another iceberg. And they were so isolated, they were so cut off, and it just reminded me that, like, I actually do have resources. I'm not cut off the way they are. Like, it is possible to go on. So I would say I learned a lot about my own ability to go on, but I'm still kind of in awe of how much more difficult their journey was. Right. They they didn't have the luxury of an iPhone 11. <laughs> no, they did not, or, or GPS or any right. of these things. Yeah. Right. They weren't able to say, hey, Siri, how do we get around here? Um, and they can't order takeout there either, it turns that's out. Right. Uh, okay, interesting. Here's another question for you. Again, you have written articles uh, for The Post and, and the New York Review of Books. Um, for you as a writer, um, and because you have done a couple of other longer books, do you have a preference? Is there is there a reward for writing a book that is different than writing uh, for a publication? I think so, because when you, when you write a really long, like a long article is called long form. When you write a really long, long form, it's a book. And I do different things with the book, because a, a magazine article or a news story can be introduce people to kind of one concept or one idea or one piece of news. But with a book, you can have a whole idea kind of, you know, the idea of this book is this incredible survival story from 400 years ago. And it's also, what do we do that turns people into legends? Like, why do we need heroes? Because Barents is also kind of the very first, this, this navigator, William Barents, is also kind of the very first polar hero. He becomes kind of the template of what we think of now when we think of, like, polar expeditions and polar heroes. Even though we've forgotten his name, Shakespeare referred to these guys more than 400 years ago, a couple of years after they got back. He referred to them in one of his plays. And so I love having a big idea that you can work all these littler ideas into and kind of put it out for the world and introduce a, a, a story or a whole concept that maybe people haven't ever thought about or, or they haven't ever gotten the whole story on. So I love doing that, and I love doing it by going to places where most people can't go. And, and sort of bringing back these kinds of stories for them. So for me, a book is a chance to go really deep on that kind of work. Well, you talked about uh, traveling. And by the way, uh, let, let me, let's, uh, let's get, don't get too far in here. You're listening to Lewis at Large. Yours truly, Warner Lewis, is always from the flight deck, talking to Andrea Pitzer. Uh, she is a journalist uh, by day, but also uh, an author. We're talking about a brand new work that she has penned called Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. Uh, Andrea, you traveled to the Arctic, and undoubtedly you probably thought a lot about this is what the Arctic looks like now. Wonder what it looked like back then, and it makes me wonder, uh, share with our Lewis at Large listeners to the extent that you can, um, what is going on with Arctic and Antarctic uh, exploration these days, and what are those dynamics? What are, what are we learning about the, the both of our poles? Well, I'll, I'll focus on the, the Arctic because that's, that's what I've been to, and, and that's where we're seeing actually the biggest change right now, much more than in the Antarctic and much more than at the latitudes you and I live at. I'm just outside D.C., as you said. And the changes happening there that I actually saw myself were pretty profound. My first trip up there, I, went, I did a dog sledding expedition in polar night, and we went at one point to an ice cave, and there had been a huge cave because it was raining in the Arctic in January, and all the weight of that water coming onto this ice cave had actually collapsed 
it had actually collapsed part of the roof of that ice cave, and we got stuck for a little bit and had to get out. And it's just not normal to have rain in the Arctic in January. And on my second expedition, I noticed for the first time as we were sailing up the coast on that tall ship, there was trash everywhere all along the coastline. We saw reindeer uh, skulls of where reindeer had obviously gotten their horns. Uh, they'd gone to maybe drink water um, from the edge of the sea, and they had gotten their horns caught up in nets. Then they had dragged whole nets you know, way inland trying to escape this thing that stuck on their head and eventually died. I mean, the trash was just incredible. And on the third expedition, we actually saw a new island that was just discovered about three or four years ago, and it was only because of retreating glaciers that the island had become visible. So from the trash to the temperatures to uh, just the whole sense of um, the climate there, many times I was there, temperatures were as much as 20 degrees above normal. So I would say that we have entered this phase in which the Arctic has become quite a different place than it was when my guys were there. And in some ways, the book talks a little bit about how this group of explorers were the very last time um, before the Arctic would be completely open, the high Arctic would be completely open to Europeans. And after that, we never left. You had whaling, you had the Industrial Revolution, you had uh, all this stuff that ends up leading to the climate change that we have. So in some ways, they're the kind of first shot in this situation that we find ourselves in now. So you refer to your guys, I like that term, you're, when, you're, <laughs> when your guys uh, return for the, for the third time. Um, do they come back to, first of all, how aware would the general, back then, communication being what it was, how aware would the public have been about these journeys at all? And did they come back to, in essence, uh, a hero's welcome? Or did were there part of the people that returned said, these people are insane? It's, it's a ridiculous waste of time and resources. This is a dangerous thing we're doing. So I don't want to ruin too much about the story all because right. it is written kind of like a novel. But what I will say is some of them come back and not all of them come back. And when they do come back, uh, people are amazed. Um, they had thought that these guys were dead. And so it was a shock that they returned at all. And the account of the three voyages was translated within a year or two into five other languages and as I said, Shakespeare, you know, they were from the Netherlands, and Shakespeare was British. And Shakespeare references them in one of the plays. They come to define for centuries the very idea of what the far north is. The farthest north that you could possibly go was where these guys had gone. And nobody got further for a very long time. So they did have this sort of stint as legends. And then, as legends tend to, they kind of got forgotten. But then in the 19th century, when this polar exploration takes off again, they become famous once more, and they are sort of the, the, the baseline for this idea of polar exploration and really getting all the way to the pole now that we have a better sense of how to get there. You know, by the, We have a little more technology to work with us in the 19th century. And so they kind of fall in and out of fame, but people were astounded by uh, what they had accomplished. Of course, they had failed in their mission entirely. They never got anywhere close to China, but just their very ability to endure this harrowing, harrowing thing made a lot of people very interested in their story. And some of the books went into multiple printings, and we have records of that. So they were quite famous for time. So this extraordinary tale of courage, valor, survival, uh, some might say stupidity. Some people on that trip may have thought that, that way. But uh, through all of this, the research that you did, hearing the story, the travel, the related travel and the research 
uh, that you did and the personal experiences that you had. Does this make you more energetic and wanting to tell similar stories, or do you feel like you've had the the idea of people sailing into difficult situations has been covered? Oh, no. There's all these stories that haven't been told yet from history, and there's the future of what's happening in the Arctic right now, which I think is as big as any issue probably in terms of the climate and the planet as anything else that's facing us. So my plan is in August, if the vaccine is widely distributed by then, I'm going back. I'm going to sail with the same crew. We are going even farther north, and I'll go as a sailor this time. Okay, when you go as a sailor, tell me what, what that going to entail. And do you need training for that, or tell us about that? Well, I got uh, I requested training on my last expedition, and they were kind. I was really seasick again, as I said for the first time. And they said the best way to get around that is take the wheel. So I learned, I, having never piloted a smaller craft, I learned in the Arctic uh, Barents Sea, now named after William Barents, my guy, uh, to to take the wheel on a sixty foot uh, vessel. And I learned to haul the sails and uh, dragged Zodiacs ashore and got a, a, an inkling of all of it and said that I would like to come back and work with them again. And I've been learning Russian and doing cold water diving. And, and these guys are really interesting. They do a lot of archaeological work. And they also do uh, some like wreck retrieval. So uh, I think that there's many, many stories from history as well as the current events that are happening. And I'm hoping to cover both the science of that and similar stories to the one that's in Icebound. So, Andrea, and on these trips, how long are you gone at a time? Well, I have kids. Otherwise, you know, I, I might tell my husband I'll be back in three months. <laughs> but, um, but with the kids, I, I have really tried uh, since most of my writing career. They've, you know, been fairly young. They're teenagers now. I've tried not to go for more than four or five weeks at a time, and even that is difficult to arrange. Some of the grandparents, bless their hearts, have uh, come and helped out at various points. Now they're getting a little older, so there might be some more ambitious uh, projects that will, will take even sort of longer at a stint. But normally I go and I come back after a few weeks. So the children, your children can drive cars now, is that right? One of them is old enough. I'm pushing them to get that license. <laughs> yeah, because where's mom? Oh, she's up in the Arctic. You know that you don't hear that very often. So uh, good for you. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing this. Again, the work is Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World by Andrea Pitzer. Uh, Andrea, uh, this sort of begs the question. This sort of feels like a, sort of maybe like a movie that needs to happen. Uh, what do we think of who? First of all, who's going to play you uh, in the movie? Wait, I get to be in the movie. Yeah, it's you, not just about my guy. We're, we're going to tuck you in as a cameo, as, as maybe a sailor. Uh, maybe not in the forefront, but we'll give you a little cameo. Oh man, yeah, I've never thought about who could play me in a movie. When I was a kid, people used to tell me I looked like Ioni Sky. Uh, who right. was an act actress who was popular at the time. I think she was a little better looking than I was, but I, I wouldn't argue with that. Gosh, there's so many actors that I love. But you know what? Like, I have actually, there's a director I've been talking to, and so, you know, you might get Icebound the movie if you're not too careful. No, this seems, no it's a powerful, powerful story. You know, I could easily see it, at, I don't know whether it's Netflix or Apple, who knows what. But anyway, well, listen, uh, again, before we get out of here, what about a website for you and how can people get a hold of the book? And also, if they want to read more of the works that you've done in the past, where can they find them? So my website is Andrea Pitzer, A-N-D-R-E-A-P-I-T-Z-E-R.com. 
And it's the same combination of letters as my Twitter handle, just Andrea Pitzer, all one word. I'm on Twitter quite a bit. And if you want to know more about my books, my website will tell you. If you want to get Icebound, which I highly recommend, it is on sale at you know bookshop.org, your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And I'm told it's also being carried in some BJs. But you can, you can order anywhere, really, that sells books. Most of them probably have it in stock. Well, hey, again, thank you for spending time with us today. Best of luck with this thing. And again, uh, whether it's on the big screen or a Netflix or something similar, we'll expect to see you at least in a small bit role somewhere. How about that? Yeah, I'll, be, I'll play a polar bear. <laughs> thanks for having me on, Warner. Well, thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.